When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is True Crime Psychology and Personality, where we discuss the pathology behind some of the most horrific crimes and those who committed them from a scientifically informed perspective. I'm Dr. Todd Grande. I have a PhD in counselor education and supervision, and I'm a licensed professional counselor of mental health. Dr. Todd Grande, that's my YouTube channel. Today's question is, can I analyze the case of Jane Bashera? Another question here is, are BDSM practitioners more likely to be dangerous than those in the general population or more likely to have a mental illness? So first I'll go through the background of the case, move to the timeline of the crime, then offer my analysis. This case takes place in Gross Point, Michigan in 2012. This is an expensive area, a lot of wealthy people, and many of the people have had money in their families for several generations. The case primarily involves three people, Bob Beshera, Jane Beshera, and Joe Gentz. Bob Beshera was a 54-year-old businessman who owned a number of properties. He rented and managed them. He started this business as a teenager. He had served as the president of the Gross Point Rotary Club and was known as a generous individual. His father was a state appellate court judge. Jane Beshera had been married to Bob for 26 years. She was a marketing manager for an energy consulting company. She was 56 years old at the time of the crime. She had stopped working for a while, but then returned to work when Bob's business fell under some tough financial times. She was well-educated, having earned both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in business administration. Bob and Jane had two children. Joe Gentz was a 48-year-old handyman who occasionally did work for Bob. He was described as developmentally disabled. Now moving to the timeline of the crime. On January 24, 2012, Jane had a meeting in downtown Detroit. This was the last time she would be seen alive. Bob claimed that he came home at about 8 p.m. and Jane was not there. He thought this was unusual because they had planned on doing their taxes that evening. Bob filed a missing person report at 11.30 p.m. after calling the police on two separate occasions. The next day at 7 a.m., a tow truck driver found Jane's body. It was found in the back seat of her Mercedes-Benz ML350, which was parked in an alley in Detroit. She had been strangled. There was evidence of a struggle, including bruises and broken fingernails. Her purse was in the vehicle. The contents were dumped out, but nothing was missing. Bob was interviewed by the police. He provided an alibi 
which covered him until 8 p.m. the night Jane went missing. He claimed he was cleaning up one of his properties. In that same building was a bar. Bob was in and out of that bar over the course of several hours, even meeting a friend there for drinks at one point. His alibi checked out for the most part, but there were two items that didn't fit. His cell phone data indicated that Bob was near his home at one point during the day, and the owner of the bar found that Bob's claim that he was cleaning up that day hard to believe. He said Bob never did that type of work himself. He always hired other people to perform that work. In addition to giving an alibi to the police, Bob told them that Jane smoked marijuana, which may explain why she was found in an area of Detroit known for the distribution of illicit substances. Bob was on television a lot in the weeks and months after his wife's murder, talking about how upset he was. It doesn't appear as though he turned down a single interview or any opportunity to be on camera. People in the community started to recognize Bob from all the media coverage. Apparently, he was into BDSM. He was known as Master Bob. In the windowless basement of that building he owned, where that bar was located, he had constructed what was referred to as a sex dungeon. Residents of the area would see individuals wearing leather and carrying whips coming and going from that location. Bob was what is referred to as a dominant. He was having an affair with a woman who referred to herself as a submissive. Her name was Rachel Jolay. She thought Bob was already divorced and planned to live a life together with him. They had even planned on buying a house. The closing date was January 27, 2012, three days after the homicide. Bob's attorney gave a letter to the police implying that Joe Gentz, again, a person who did some work occasionally for Bob, was involved in the murder. After initially denying any involvement, Joe Gentz made a confession to the police. He said that Bob had agreed to pay him to murder Jane. Joe had a number of different stories about what the agreed payment was. His last version was $8,000 and an old Cadillac. Joe said on January 24, he and Bob were at Bob's house when Jane came home at about 7 p.m. Bob and Jane started arguing. Bob told Joe to take her out, and Bob produced a firearm. Bob was threatening Joe with this weapon. Joe strangled Jane and drove Jane's SUV with her body in it to that alley in Detroit. Joe accurately described the condition of Jane's vehicle, like where he left the keys and where her purse had been dumped out. The police needed to corroborate Joe's confession, and because Joe had an IQ of 67, they were reluctant to believe his story. Joe was released with no charges. After collecting phone records from both Bob and Joe, the police found they contacted each other 472 times in the days leading up to Jane's death. In addition, Joe said that he dropped the boots he was wearing during the murder in a donation bin. Investigators recovered those boots and would find Jane's DNA on them. This corroborated Joe's account. He was arrested on March 3, 2012, and charged with first-degree murder. Next, we see that an appliance store owner named Steve Thibodeau claimed that Bob wanted him to kill Joe Gentz in jail. The authorities had Steve set up a meeting with Bob that they recorded. During the meeting between Steve and Bob, Bob said he didn't kill his wife, but he also offered Steve $20,000 to find somebody to kill Joe Gentz. Three days later, Bob returned to the store and paid Steve $2,000 to 
This was, I guess, a down payment for the murder for hire. Bob asked for a receipt. Now, the receipt was for an appliance in the same amount as the payment, but this is still a really bad move. I'm surprised that Bob didn't ask Thibodeau to take a selfie with him and post it on Instagram, like hashtag murder for hire. I guess his thinking was, just because he was a killer doesn't mean he should forego tax deduction opportunities. Bob was arrested and charged with solicitation to commit murder. He pleaded guilty to that charge and was sentenced to seven years in prison. Joe Gentz pleaded guilty to second-degree murder in December of 2012. He was sentenced to 17 to 28 years in prison. He could be released as early as March 2, 2029. As part of his plea deal, Joe agreed to testify against Bob. Bob was charged with first-degree murder, as well as a few other charges. He was already in prison, so he was easy to find. Bob Bashera was convicted of first-degree murder and the remaining charges in 2014, even though Joe Gentz refused to testify against him. Bob was sentenced in 2015 to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Later that same year, 2015, Joe Gentz changed his story again. Now he claimed that he killed Jane on his own. At a hearing, he would tell the original story. So he changed his story, but then went back to mostly the original version of his story. On August 17, 2020, Bob Bashera would die. He was 62 years old. Now moving to my analysis. This is a case that has a lot of flashy circumstances, especially around Bob's BDSM lifestyle. The media really grabbed onto that. There was not a lot of focus on the actual evidence of the crime. Was Bob Bashera actually guilty of first-degree murder? Let's take a look at the evidence both for and against the idea that he is guilty, starting with the evidence for, the inculpatory evidence. Bob Bashera was having an affair. He was not telling his girlfriend the truth about his marriage. He was buying a house with that girlfriend. The closing date, as I mentioned, was three days after the homicide. The girlfriend considered this to be a deadline. Bob was under pressure to meet this deadline. Bob may have kept his BDSM activities secret from his wife. Joe Gentz clearly was the killer and implicated Bob. Bob had a lot of contact with Joe leading up to the murder, which was out of the ordinary. A key part of Joe's story was how Bob produced a firearm at the crime scene. This was in the garage of Bob's house. His mother found a gun in Bob's safe deposit box. This seems like an unusual place to store a weapon. Bob pleaded guilty for trying to hire someone to kill Joe. Now, clearly, this does make him look guilty, but I think his behavior at the sentencing for that crime only made Bob's situation worse. He never explained his motive for wanting to kill Joe Gentz and apologized to Joe Gentz. If Bob was not guilty, one would think that he would be very angry at Joe for killing his wife. That would be the motive. Many people, I think, would feel that way about someone who killed their spouse. If someone was angry in that situation, why would they apologize to the killer? So I think he made two real key mistakes there that show a disconnect from empathy. Like he didn't know how people were feeling. He didn't understand that he could have been angry at Joe Gentz. That would have been more believable than apologizing to him. Now look at the evidence pointing toward innocence, the exculpatory evidence. Bob had no criminal record and was well-respected in the community. Joe Gentz was an extremely unreliable witness who changed his story several times. 
All those calls back and forth were explained by Bob as Joe calling for money because Joe was in the middle of a custody dispute. He was having some financial problems. No physical evidence at the crime scene tied Bob Beshera to the murder. So if the murder took place in that garage, why wasn't there any physical evidence to show that Bob Beshera was involved in that crime? It was Bob's attorney that tipped off the police about Joe. If Bob actually hired Joe, why was he interested in turning him in? That seems like a bad strategy to remain out of prison. Although maybe he was trying to get ahead of the idea that the police were going to arrest somebody at some point for the murder, like Bob Bashera himself. So he thought he could shift the blame over to Joe and hold on to some credibility. The police investigation was inept. Among other problems, potential exculpatory evidence was never collected. When considering the evidence both for and against guilt, do I think Bob Bashera was guilty? I think he was actually guilty, but as far as the legal standard, he was not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. One reasonable doubt would be based on how Joe Gentz was a terribly unreliable witness who changed his story many times. The next question has to do with Bob's BDSM activities. If he was guilty, does this point to any type of dangerous tendency by BDSM practitioners? Like as a group, do dominant participants, for example, tend to be violent? Sadomasochistic sexual activity is based on humiliation, power, and sometimes physical pain. Practitioners can be divided into those who are dominant, submissive, and those who switch back and forth. They play both roles. Previous studies have connected the practice of BDSM with various forms of psychopathology. However, later studies have disputed this. This has caused a debate about BDSM. Is it a harmless recreational activity or a deviant pathological psychosexual behavior? To answer this, let's take a look at the personality profile of BDSM practitioners. This, of course, is in general. It doesn't speak to any specific person. When I conceptualize personality, I often use the five-factor model. I remember the five factors through the acronym OCEAN. Openness to experience, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. So here we see that BDSM practitioners, again, in general, as a population, tend to be high in openness to experience. They are intellectually curious, creative, liberal, and tend to experience emotions intensely. As far as conscientiousness, those who are dominant and submissive are higher than non-BDSM practitioners in conscientiousness. But those who switch back and forth have average conscientiousness. Extroversion is higher than average, especially for submissive practitioners. As far as agreeableness, the level is average except for dominant practitioners. Their score is lower. When examining the last trait, neuroticism, the score is lower for all three groups when compared to the general population, with dominant practitioners being very low. What does this tell us as far as the potential dangerousness of practitioners? There is no reason to believe that they are more dangerous than anyone else. What does it say as far as mental health? There is no reason to believe they are more likely to suffer from mental illness than a random person sampled from the general population. How can the research results relate to the case of Bob Bashera? When looking at the personality tendencies for BDSM practitioners, those who are dominant do stand out a little bit. Specifically, we see high extroversion, low agreeableness, 
and low neuroticism for that group. Now, simply being higher or lower in traits like this doesn't connect to criminality. But if somebody was highly extroverted, very low in agreeableness, and very low in neuroticism, it would be more likely that individual would have psychopathic and or narcissistic characteristics. Maybe that's what happened in the case of Bob Bashera. This would explain a lot about his behavior. For example, how he was able to have his wife murdered, how he was able to try to hire somebody to kill the hitman who killed his wife, why he was willing to give so many media interviews and expose himself to all that risk, like being trapped in an inconsistent story, why he had a subdued emotional reaction when his wife was discovered dead, like when the police told him that, how he was able to live in a fantasy, to believe that he could be married to one woman and yet buy a house with another, and how he was able to believe that he could hire an unreliable hitman and still get away with the crime. I think the bottom line is that Bob Bashera was a cowardly murderer who believed he could have it all. Maybe he thought he deserved it all. In the end, it was his desperation to get away with murder that led to his undoing. If he had not tried to hire someone to kill the hitman, he probably would never have been convicted for murdering his wife. The same arrogance that contributed to the homicide solved the homicide. This has been True Crime Psychology and Personality from Ars Longa Media. This content is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Ars Longa Vita Brevis. Saving money on exterior wall lights. Now at Menards. Find your style with Patriot Lighting. Exterior lights enhance the look of your home. Choose from over 50 options from Patriot Lighting. Now through May 19th, get $10 instant savings on a single qualifying purchase of $100 or more on in-stock outdoor wall lights. Check out our entire selection of outdoor lights and see the rest of our deals happening now on Menards.com. Save big money at